Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. So Rick and Larry, I will turn this over to you. We will spotlight you both. And uh, I'm, here, I'm here when you want me. Hello, hello. Hello. Larry, you're uh, muted. Oh, so Di- sorry. it says Di- Di- there. And we're, we're on. Yermia was a bullfrog, was a good lover of mine. Never understood a single word he said, but we helped him a drink his yayin. And we always had yeah, some light of fun yayin. Uh huh. Welcome to Off Torah Plethora Live, the video podcast where we might not bring joy to the world, but we do talk about Jeremiah. Yeah, you know, I was getting tired of that song, but now that Diane's done it in Hebrew, I like it a whole lot better, so we should keep doing it that way. Yeah, it was great. Even better than the original version by the Three Dog Night that we used for our recorded show. Diane promises to record a version for future shows with back with musical back uh, backup. Anyways, Good. Good. I'm Larry Herman. Normally, I'd be sipping some very fine wine, but I'll save it for the douche today. And talking haftarah with my very good friend, the King of Cantillation, Rick Muller, and with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. Welcome, Rabbi Schatz. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I just want to point out, since this will be a podcast, that this is in an effort for us to be able to bring creative moments to Shabbat services. And it's really a pleasure to be able to dive into the Haftorah. For many people um, who were engaged in Shabbat services before the pandemic, um, you know that Rabbi Klickfeld and I uh, taught on this Haftorah triennial uh, um, tshuva last year. And that we tried to do a lot more Haftorah learning within our community before the pandemic hit. So it feels very appropriate that here we are with you being able to learn even more Haftorah. And I look forward to being part of it. So thank you for having me. Well, it's our great honor. And for those few of you who may never have listened to our award-winning, highly acclaimed, <laughs> blockbuster hit weekly Haftorah Plethora Zoomcasts, a little over the top there, sir. Well, I can have aspirations, can he? In any case, those of you who are new to Haftorah Plethora will soon see that Rick and I... And Rabbi Schatz. Yes, sir. We're thrilled to have Rabbi Schatz here to join us. And maybe Anyways, balance some of your irreverence. Me? Irreverent? Well, maybe sometimes. But I take your point. And I think that I'll run with it. In any case, if you're through interrupting me, Rick and I... And Rabbi Schatz. <laughs> And Rabbi Schatz discuss the Haftarah each week, perhaps a bit irreverently at times, but mostly delving into the text and the trope. The weekly Haftarah usually gets short shrift, as Rabbi Schatz said, in terms of study and drash. And our goal is to make the chanting of the Haftarah just a bit more interesting. And this week's Haftarah is already pretty interesting. Is it ever? And it's got tons of interesting trope. You always have some interesting trope, Drash Rick. But before we get started, I want to ask you, have you ever heard of tsunamitism? 
No, can't say that I have, but I have a feeling I know where this is going. Is this one of your wild rides into irreverence? Maybe, but it is a real thing. It's also known as jirakami. Shinamitism is the practice of an old man sleeping with, but not necessarily having sex with, a young virgin to preserve his youth. It's considered an esoteric youth-enhancing method. The rationale was that the heat of the moisture of the young woman would transfer to the old man and revitalize him. Watch out. You're getting a little too titillating for this kaha. <laughs> you may think so. But if so, then perhaps we should skip the first four verses of the Haftarah, because that's exactly where the idea comes from. Yeah, but who knew that was a thing? Well, it was, and probably still is a thing, and not only for kings. And what about queens? Most certainly. But it, it was even promoted scientifically, at least according to the science of the day, as late as the 17th and 18th centuries. And to think it all started here in our Haftorah with old King David. Okay, but let's get back to our Haftorah. As usual, we'll divide the Haftorah into parts, discuss the story and the trope, and then Rick will chant that part. Today's Haftorah is from the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. It's actually a continuation of the story of King David from the end of book 2 of, of Samuel, and it's the beginning of the passing of the throne to Solomon. The way I see it, the story is divided into six scenes. In scene one, a cold King David is warmed up by Avishag, the beautiful Shunamit virgin. Scene two starts, with the, in, starts the intrigue with the rebellion of Adoniah, David's son, by his wife Chagit. In the third scene, Natan the prophet warns, warns Bathsheba and instructs her to go to David. Bathsheba then goes to David in scene four and tells him of Adoniah's plot. Then Natan himself goes to David and also tells him of the plot. And finally, our sixth and final scene, an energized David resolves not to allow the plot to succeed. And then it's curtains. Well, if we read on in chapter two of 1 Kings, we would see that it ends up being curtains for Adoniah and his fellow conspirators, but that's beyond a half Torah. Before we start with scene one, I have a general comment to make about the Haftorah and its connection to the Torah portion that I hadn't seen mentioned elsewhere. And I'll add that Rabbi Schatz gave me an idea that I'll mention here as well. In both the Torah reading, the one we actually read this morning, and in the Haftorah, we have the interesting phenomenon of the repeated story. In the Torah portion, Abraham's servant, on a mission to find a wife for Isaac, first tells himself what will happen at the well. Then the event itself occurs and is described. And finally, he repeats it to Levan and Bituel. Commentators have made much of the subtle differences in the various versions, but it's interesting that each is told and repeated in rather great detail. In our Haftorah, we have something very similar. First, Adonia's attempted usurpation of the throne is described in detail. This is then followed by three separate but very similar but slightly different repetitions. First by Natan to Bathsheba, then by Bathsheba to David, and finally by Natan to David. I believe that this, that this is the parallel that attracted our sages to connect the Haftar reading to the Parsha. We should pay careful attention to any of the changes in the Parsha and in the words and in the trope of repetitions to see if we can coax out some meaning. And I actually think Rabbi Schatz gave me an idea about that. 
Because what Rabbi Schatz said was, notice that Rebecca was not involved. She had no agency. She didn't speak. But here, in our Haftorah, the agency is actually given to Batsheva. Not only does she speak, she's instrumental in the way in which the story plays out. And that difference is very important. One more point. The rabbi asked the question about love, the love between Isaac and Rebekah, and asked, didn't Abraham love Sarah? In this case, we have a story, which we'll get to in a minute, of Avishag, the, 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 the beautiful virgin who is given to David in his old age to warm him up. But notice that Bathsheba, his wife, how did he, quote, love her? Bathsheba's, the love of, of David to Bathsheba was actually a lust, which, if you recall, led to a disaster. But in any case, it wasn't true love. At the end, when he has this beautiful virgin, not as a consort because he can't consummate with her, but as someone that he has some quasi-lust for or old man's lust for, where is his love? Perhaps his love is for Bathsheba. The woman who used to be beautiful and now in her old age is beautiful perhaps in a different way mm-hmm. and love grew between them so that she had an influence on him. Okay, okay. Do I get to say something? Sure, Rick. What have you got? <clears throat> what's in the script here? I'm just reading what's in the script. <laughs> okay, so um, trope Josh, um, my basic theory is that the rarer trope uh, highlight the most special words of a piece of Torah, a piece of Haft Torah. So um, you can go on Wikipedia. There's different places, of course, Jewish books, but you can get a listing of the trope. Uh, the Pazer is the rarest trope. It looks like a Y on top of the word, and there's only one of those, and it's in the it's in the climax. It's in the it's in the conclusion. Um, there's a Zarka trope, looks like a little snake on top. There's a Segol that goes with it, looks like three dots. There's, those are very rare, the next rarest. We have um, three of those, uh, two telling the story and one in between. And then there's some other special trope that I wanted to bring up. But um, uh, the common trope are common. You see them all the time. And then the rarer trope um, highlight the... Uh, dramatic parts of the story is uh, my theory. You know, Rick, you've often mentioned that some of the most dramatic trope end up being on some of the simplest words. Yes, yes. And uh, here too. So um, you're, I'm sure you're going to tell us about it when we get to it. So I think it's time to start. And I think we should turn to scene one, the first four verses of our Haftorah, <clears throat> where Abishag keeps the being warm. I have a couple of points to make before you Give us a trope drush. Tell us if there's any interesting trope here and then chant it. So the first is um, some scholars point to the possibility that Abishag is the female protagonist in the Song of Songs. Mm -hmm. So that would be David's son, Solomon, who wrote that. But more interesting, do you remember last week's Parsha? Uh, Last week's Haftorah? In last week's Haftorah, Elisha performs miracles, and one of them is performed for a tsunami woman. And this happens a generation or two, a couple generations, after the story we're telling right now. So I don't see any commentators or any midrash that talks about the obvious connection between 
these two Shunamite women. Is it possible that the Shunamite woman in the story of Elisha, later on in, in the book of Kings, is actually a descendant of this Abishag? Is it possible that she could actually be a descendant of King David or King Solomon or uh, Adonia? I don't know. But it would seem to be an interesting, you have an interesting possible midrash there. Rick, what do you got? Um, on, it's just common stuff at the, the beginning. It's the uh, prologue. It's, it's not, uh, nothing much to say on the beginning. What about that, what about that word at the end? Yada'ah, knowing. Okay, well, it's not much trope, but yeah, the, there is um, there's confusion uh, confusion on King David's part whether what he what he knows what he knows and what he doesn't know. But um, it's not a trope thing more than it's just a, a verb thing. So David didn't know Abishad <clears throat> in the sexual sense, but he also didn't know what was going on around him. Right, 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 right. Can I can I ask a trope question? Sure. It went, because this is the beginning of Kings, literally one one. Do do they usually um, when trope was being put into um, into the Torah or into the any place in the Tanakh to read it? Did they usually start with more known trope, or are there places where the beginnings of books started with rare tropes? Um, great question. Um, like Breshi. Right, the the story of the whole world. It just starts with a tipcha. Yeah, it's not, yeah. It's not even mercha. Tipcha is just tipcha, like something happened before that. Right. <laughs> but like the Big Bang. But um, <laughs> uh, lo- lots of uh, it's just um, it, it's just the the beginning of the story. Like uh, yeah, King David was old, but but it's not it, it's not the highlight of the the story mm-hmm. here. Um, just the way I see it. But um, um, Rabbi yeah, Shatz. But it is interesting that the book begins with the word and how often would you have a book that says and and usually suggests a continuation. Robert Alter actually thinks that this is a continuation and that when they actually divided these stories into books, they chose to put this story, which is he also says in terms of the style is connected to the end of the book of Samuel here because they wanted to differentiate the reign of Solomon and focus more on politics later on. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I think we should go. Go. <laughs> so it's page 143. Top of the page. Uh, nice commentary all around. Please read the commentary, especially at the bottom of 143. You got two groups of people fighting for uh, power. It doesn't happen today, but it happened back then. <laughs> Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam asher kitshana b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Amen. V'amelech David zaken ba'bayamim v'yichasuhu ba'begadim v'lo yicham lo v'yomru lo avadav yivakshu Ladoni ha melech na'aravetula ve'amda lifnei ha melech u'tihilo sochenet v'shachva ha'vechekecha v'cham ladoni ha melech v'yivakshu na'ara yafa 
very nice, very nice. So should we move on to the second scene here? Scene yes. Two. Yes. Five so, through ten. Right, right. So um, notice that uh, the characters in the story, they get trope on their names, of course. And uh, verse eight that Sadok HaKohen has that little balloon thing on top. It's called the Tilishagadola. Tilishagadola. Very uncommon, very rare trope. So Tzadok gets a good one. Uvna Yahuvan Yehoyada. And also in verse 8, he's also a good guy. He gets dramatic trope. You'll see that repeating later on. And then um, the, the, the narration of the plot, the narration of what Adoniah is doing, it's just kind of simple trope. Verse 9, Vayizbach, the, the word that and he sacrificed, just has a munach on it. And then Adoniah has a revia, that's fairly common. Tzon, uvakar, umri, what they're sacrificing is just common trope. I just want you to see that. And then uh, verse 10, Natan, <clears throat> the hero the uh, of the story, the way they wrote it, um, he comes in with some rare trope there. And Hanavi Uvnaya, again, again, the dramatic trope in verse 10. So um, just let that sit uh, for a little bit. Okay. I have not much to add about this, except there's some, maybe a little question as to whether Adonia is actually trying to usurp the crown or whether he's just setting the stage for usurping the crown. Was this actually supposed to be a coronation? And if it was a coronation, yeah. obviously without his father's knowledge, and he obviously intentionally excluded both Natan the prophet and Solomon. And, and uh, Benaiah. So, yeah, he, he's picking and choosing. But um, this is just the narration. And, yeah, it, it doesn't say that he's exactly... Um, oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, verse 5, it does. Verse 5, it says he wants to be king. But um, it's kind of a tame... I'm portraying it as a tame description. Okay? Ready? Go ahead. So five to ten. Vadonia ven chagit minase lemor ani emlo vaya aslo rechev ufarashim, which is an echo of uh, Egypt and Pharaoh and the chariots. It's always bad stuff. Bachamishim ish ratzim lefanav below atzavo aviv miyamav lemor madua kacha asita vegamu tov to armeod veoto yalda achre avshalom vayu dvarav im yoav ben suria. Ve'im eviatar ha-kohen v'ya'ezru achare Adoniah v'tzadok ha-kohen uv'nayahu v'nyoyada v'natan ha-navi 
You know, Rick, that that Kadmava uh, Azla, uh, my favorite of the trope, in verse ten, Hanavi Uvnayahu seems to dramatically explain explain that uh, Natan, where you have the Tlishagadai, as you mentioned, that these are going to be the heroes of the story. Yes, they're they're, they're connected here, and um, um. Okay, fine. So verse 10, you see the introduction of Natan and, and, and his trope. David is going to incorporate that later on. Just want to give you that as a preview. But, um, and as always, I got mixed up between the Tulisha, Kitana, and Gedola. Yeah, uh, Kitana leans to the left. Gedola leans to the right. Gedola is always on the first letter of the word. It's called pre-positive but you don't necessarily sing it there. I'll show you when we get to 19. And uh, Kitana is always in the last letter. It's post-positive, but you hardly ever sing it there. Um, but anyway. Here's a uh, way you can, Larry, you can remember it because fewer people are left-handed. Aha. Uh-huh. All right. But <laughs> that's I, how, <laughs> me too, but that's how I remember it. <laughs> so we turn to scene three. We turn to scene three, and scene three is the first telling of the story, repetition of the story, as I mentioned before, reminiscent in a, to what happened in our, in, our, in our Parsha. And the wording is really important. I want to point out at least one thing that I, get from Robert, uh, that I took from Robert Alter in the very first verse, in chapter, in verse, verse 11 here, we have the name of Adoniah, actually the word is Adoniahu, which literally means... Um, my God is, is Yah, which is one of the names of God. Um, and in the same verse, Natan speaking to Chagi is talking about Adonenu, our God, which is the God, the Tetragrammaton, the God of the, um, of the Israelites. No, 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 no. Here, Adonenu is David, sir. I'm sorry, you're right. He's talking about Adonenu, David, right. Not about... Our Lord, our, Lord, our Lord David, yeah. That's right. But there's an interesting, if you listen for it, you'll hear the two, the, the two words meaning very different things. Yes, yes. Okay, um, me? Okay, yeah. so then uh, coming up in verse 12, you've got a rare trope. There's five of them, and they connect. Veata and now, okay? If you look at the bottom, there's a Masoretic note which um, I'm throwing in here, verse 18, it's coming up. Um, whether it's atta with an aleph, meaning you, or atta with an ayin at the back of your throat, the ayin is, means now, 
And back in the day, you could really tell the difference between Atta and Atta. But there's a confusion there when we get down to 18 and 19, even in the text about which one it is. So I wanted to point that out. But this trope here, verse 12, it repeats, and um, and it's great stuff. But um, this is 11 to 14 now. Yeah, this is uh, Natan to Batsheva, the second telling of the story. And, and it's he's putting in her mouth what to say to the king. Does it, you wonder, though, at the beginning, how much time has passed and how Natan heard about what was going on in order to tell Batsheva. Correct. A hint of, of the answer. Right. You're right. He embellishes, and he's not there, but uh, we'll, we'll see that. Okay, okay? Okay, go so, for So it. 11 to 14. I'm just aware of the time. Vayomer Natan, el batsheva em shlomo lemor, haloho shama'at ki malach adoniyahu ben chagit, vadoneinu david, Lo yada, again, he didn't know. Ve'ata, and now, lechi, i'atzechna eitza, umalti et nafshech, ve'et nefesh b'nech shlomo. It's like Mordechai telling uh, Esther to go to the king, right? Lechi, uvoi el ha-melech David. Ve'amart elav halo ata Adonia melech nishbata lamadcha lemor kishlamo venech imloch acharai vehu yeshev akisi umadua malach Adoniyahu. You know, Rick, you, you correctly point out it's like Mordechai talking to Esther, but in the context of our Parsha, it's like Abraham talking to his servant and giving him instructions. And then seeing later on what he does. Yep, yep. Okay, more? Uh, All right. Okay, so then 15 to 21, this is Bathsheba actually going to David and talking to him. Okay, so look at, uh, concentrate on verse 19 and compare it to what we did in verse 9. The Vaizbach is going to get special trope. The whole sacrifice is going to get the Zarka and the Segol, rare trope. And um, then she trails off and uh, watch the yata. You know, when do you say now to a king and when do you say you to a king? You know, mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a touchy thing. Um, but you have the Zakef Gadol again, verse 18 and um, a couple of other atas there. And then we're going to stop at 21. So there's another one there. Verse 21. The is coming up. Um uh, what's going to happen? Um, she's she's painting the picture of what's uh, what's going on without um, David knowing about it. So what you're saying, Rick, is that Batsheva is really expressing herself dramatically, impassionately, impassionately, um, convincingly. She's using all of her powers of her intellect and her persuasion 
to try to influence King David, right? And music. She knows trope, yes. All right, she knows trope. But look at the very beginning. What happens at the beginning? She goes into his chamber, and who's there? Avishag. Uh, yes. Amit is standing by the king's side. This beautiful young virgin, this beautiful young woman. And what was Bathsheba? Not a virgin, but she was beautiful and young. And she actually had her way with the king in the past, because not because of her intellect, but only because of her physical attributes. And now she goes in when the thing that represents what she used to be, Avishag, is standing right next to the king, having no influence, no power whatsoever. And to me, going back to what Rabbi Shad says, this suggests that what happens in the relationship between two people, a man and a woman, it doesn't matter, but two people who love each other, it may at first be physical attraction or even lust, but eventually it's other things that come to dominate the relationship, and she becomes much more powerful than Avishag or anything of beauty. Yeah. Okay, okay. Unless Rabbi Shad says anything to add? I'm, I'm working on a thought, but I'll share it when it, come, when it fully formulates. All right. Rick, go ahead. <laughs> that, that's Verse fine. 15. Yes. Um, right, right, right. So 15 to 21 is the next scene. V'atavo v'atsheva el ha-melech ha-chadra v'ha-melech zaken me'od v'avishag ha-shun Mesharat et ha-melech, v'atikohod b'atsheva, v'atishtachu l'amelech, v'yomer ha-melech malach, v'atomer lo, Adoni, atanishbata, v'adonai elohecha l'amatecha, kishlamo v'nech, Yimloch acharai, vehu yeshev akisi, veata hine adonia malach, veata adoni hamelech lo yadata, he didn't know, vaizbach shor umri vetzon. La rov, vaikra, lechol bene hamelech, oleviatar, a kohen, u yoav, saratsava, vilishlamo, avdecha, lokara, veata, and you, adoni hamelech, ene chol yisrael, alecha. You know, Rick, one of the interesting differences between the story that Natan tells to, to Bathsheba and the story that Bathsheba tells to the king is Natan says to, to Bathsheba to tell the king that 
he swore, David swore to Bathsheba that Solomon would be the king. Now, that never actually happened. We don't know that that happened because there's no record of it back in, in Samuel. But when Bathsheba tells that same story to the king, to David, she not only says, you swore to me, she says, you swore to Adonai. Mm-hmm. You swore to God. Yes. He elevates it to a higher standard. Which happened, if any of them happened? And does it really matter whether they happen or not? Because it's the narrative that becomes the thing that influences the king's behavior. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Should we we move on to to scene five? Yes. Okay, so coming up in verse 25 is the repeat again of, uh, yeah, this bad guy, he sacrificed and he did uh, um, the uh, uh, oxen and the fatlings and the sheep. It's the same trope by Yisbach. As the as the Zarkag, and then the Segol, but then Natan uh, intensifies it. Nathan intensifies it. and he called, meaning Adoniyahu uh, He called all the king's uh, sons, but he didn't call Solomon. So it, it's an intense. Back in verse 19, it was just a pashta and vayikra lechol b'nei hamelech munach sakev katon. But here, it's tilishak tana kadmaviyazla with the same words. So he's intensifying it. Um, and then that repeats again in 26. He uses the same trope to describe himself. Ani avdecha, I'm just your servant. Uh, King David, I'm just trying to help things along. He's the hero. He's the hero. But Shlomo, he, he, your servant Shlomo, he didn't call him. Poor little Solomon. I'm off to the side. So, uh, oh, and then verse 24, the, the, the brackets are the Vaizbachs, right? With the Tilishagidola, then the Zarka. So uh, Nathan, when he starts talking, he uses again the rare trope. And he's and, and Nathan said, well, the, the narrator introduces him with the rare trope um, in verse 24. Um, OK, uh, that's that's it. That's enough for that. OK, so 22 just, to 27. I just want to mention before you before you before you start. Yes. So, but Sheva was talking to the king when Nathan, quote, arrived. So bear that in mind when we get to see in the beginning of scene six. Yes. And also note that in reading of, of this scene, Natan makes now no reference whatsoever to the vow that David supposedly made to Bathsheba and or to God that Solomon would become king because he he, he, he purely wouldn't wouldn't have known about it. He right. Would not have known about it. Right. Uh, Nathan also knows what they're doing at this party that he's not invited to. They're eating and drinking and they're shouting things. He, he's not there. So either he had a spy there or he's just making that up. But uh, or maybe I, I would guess it would be a spy. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, All right. Let's right. Read, let's right. And he comes in on the word chataim, you know, uh, sinners and non-sinners. He comes in the word chataim. Uh, so he, I, I picture him listening at the door and, uh, coming in to confirm her story uh, when he hears um, how uh, Solomon is, is described. Anyway. Okay. okay. So 22 to 27, the next scene. 
Odena midaberet im hamelech benatan hanavi ba vayagidu la melech lemor ine natan hanavi vayavo lifne hamelech vayistach vayistachu la melech alapav arza. Vayomer Natan Adoni Hamelech Ata Amarta, you said Adoni Yahu Yimlochacharai Vehu Yeshev Akisi Ki Yaradayom Vayizbach Shor Umrivetzon La rov vaikra the cholbene hamelech usre hatsava uleviatahar hakohen pinam ochlim veshotim lefanav vayohomru yechi hamelech adoniyahu. Veli ani avdecha ulzadok hakohen believe na yahu ben yoyada believe avdecha lokara im meet adoni hamelech nihia adavar hazeh velo hodata. Et avdecha mi yeshev akise adoni hamelech acharav. So you know, Rick, I wonder, was Natan appealing to David's sense of of um, being insulted by Adonia because he was too weak to even be king, and Adonia was taking over from David? Or was it that he was usurping the throne from his son Solomon? Or both of those things at the same time? Whatever yes. it was, it's pretty clear that Natan is almost trolling, in the modern, to use the modern term, David, saying, look at what these guys are doing to you. Yes, yes. Um, right, 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 right. And uh, I said what I said about the trope. Um, are we ready to go on? So we get to scene six. The climatic, the climatic scene where the weak, impotent David somehow manages to find the strength to, we, we think, physically rise up and react to everything he's been told. But what happens at the very beginning? He says, summon Bathsheba. Wasn't Bathsheba there? Right. So Alter explains it in the following way. There are no three-way conversations. These conversations are one on one. So he, he thinks that when Natan walked in, in scene five, we're to understand that Bacheva to, uh, took her leave and she stepped out. There's, there's an interest. Oh, sorry. I didn't, no, mean no, to go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. There's an interesting part here. Um, if you look at that's connected actually to the Parsha, um, I'm trying to see if I can find the verse. Uh, 
Yeah. Okay. So this is the verse that Rabbi Shapiro and I talked about in our Parsha class yesterday. Um, so chapter 24, verse 50 in Brayshit, the same words are used in the same kind of pattern. Vayaan, in this case, it says, Lavan uvetuel, vayomru. And here in, in the Haftorah, we're seeing Vayaan Hamelech David Vayomer, because it's yeah. just saying there's no other people. So it's interesting that they're using the same kind of, the same kind of um, wording. And that what happens right after this uh, in the Parsha is that they talk about turning to the good or to the bad, whether they're going to say the good or the bad, and they can't because God has decreed it, so they can't say good or bad. But in the Haftorah, there's also kind of this shift of one side to another, right? That it's tavo lifnei ha-melech v'ta'amod lifnei ha-melech, right? Should I, should I come before you or should I stand before you? And so it's, in, it's just the, the word, I mean, the scene is not exactly the same, but the wording is so similar, um, and, uh, and I, anyway, I just wanted to point out that that connection that I would not have noticed had we not taught on that verse yesterday, because it's a very, uh, a very specific connection, but, but an interesting one. It is. It is. It is interesting. And then it's also interesting that the king, that David, the first thing he does is he takes an oath. And this yeah. question of what was the oath that he took before, right. now he believes that he actually made a commitment, and he's got to fulfill this commitment. So he takes another oath, and this oath is actually made to Adonai. It's made to God. And the oath is that that Solomon should succeed me as king and sit upon my throne in my stead. Not only that he's going to be the king after David dies, but he's actually going to install Solomon to be the king before he dies. And at the very end, and I don't know whether you're going to talk about this in terms of the trope, Rick. So what does Batsheva do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me say. So, um, hey. Hi. So, yeah. Um, two other things. Uh, bowing low, right? Eliezer bows low, and, and uh, that's a, it's a, 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 a Torah theme. Vayishtachu yeah. Artsa, bowing. Same thing happens here. They're bowing before the king. And then there's a trope thing. Um, the Zakef the line with the two dots again, it's a, um, uh, it's a high point, it's a dramatic point. Um, when they're sending Rebecca off, Achotenu in verse uh, 60, our mm-hmm. sister's going, right? And um, Rebecca has a lot of uh, um, uh, um, honor there, okay? Yeah. So the same thing with, um, with Batsheva. She gets at the very end, the Vatomer, she gets to say the king lives. And uh, David, Melech Israel comes from that. <laughs> so uh, she, uh, she gets that honor. And then there's another one in verse 29, when David actually makes the vow. Chai Adonai is, is how he starts the vow. And then there's the Pazer there in verse 30, um, where uh, um, it's the rarest trope. And um, again, Natan's theme is is built into his answer there. Um, yeah. Rick, what word is the pazeron? On key, a simple word that a doesn't have much word. meaning otherwise, Larry. Yes. <laughs> a simple word. Like so Zeh or like any other simple word. But uh, it's what you do with the word. It's the music you make of the word. You can be simple and still make beautiful music. Is that what you're trying to say, Larry? Uh, well, 
one of the things, I mean, I'm always looking for an explanation for why you've got a very dramatic trope on a very simple word. It means there's something else in there, as you've taught me before. I want to make one more connection to the Parsha. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't hear it until now. I know that you were jealous that Stan got to do all these shalshalits the last two weeks. Yes, very much so. <laughs> but we got a shalshalit in the Parsha on Vayomer, when the servant, who we think is Eliezer, he's saying, he's saying to the to Adonai, the god of his, the god of his master Abraham. So I won't interpret that one. And we've got your one of your favorite trope, with you mentioned the Zarkev Gadol on Vatomer. So these two special trope, both of them on the word, and he said, and she said. said yes, yes, very good. Very and what good. She, she flatters him. After all this, she flatters him. You will live forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. So you want to chant that last bit for us? Yes. I also want to say that we still have 22 participants, and that's a great thing. We didn't lose anybody. <laughs> well, we want to ask. We want to ask them to join in as soon as you finish chant- chanting the. the- <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the ending, twenty-eight to the end. Vayan Hamelech David Vayomer Kiruli Levat Shava Vatavolif Nehamelech Vataamud Lif Nehamelech Vayishava Hamelech. Vayomar Chai Adonai Asher Pada et Nafsi Mikotzara Ki Kasher Nishvati Lach Baronai Elohe Yisrael Lemor Kishlomo Venech Imlo Ho Chacharai it also was art's done another version Yehi Adoni Amelech David Leolam. Fantastic. So, Rabbi Schatz, I don't know whether we have time, whether you think we have time to, to have questions or comments from the Kahal. Yeah, sure. Marshall has a question. I, I'm going to just say my point so that, that you can Please. take questions and then and then um, and then you can end whenever you want to on your own terms. Um, so this is the point that I've been kind of mulling over, and I, I think it's like 80 percent there. It's definitely more there than it was when I first thought of it. But one of the things I brought my own book because Larry brings his own books to what uh-huh. I so okay. I brought the JPS Bible commentary just on Haftarot. Um, and one of the things that they mention is at the beginning of this Haftarah says, David which is exactly the same way that it talks about Abraham. It says, And the thing that I was, that I was thinking about, because sure, there, the words are similar, as I pointed out a few moments ago, with another moment where the words are similar. But it's what 
it's what these two characters do with the idea that they are Zaken Ba Bayamin, right? The fact that they are older in their age, they have such different approaches to what they do at the end of their days and also what the community does to keep them comfortable, right? Um, King David has a woman brought to him to, to keep him warm and to keep him, um, you know, going until he, until he has to die. But, but the, the the fact that Abraham uses his last moments of strength to make sure that his son has a wife is really interesting. It's a very, it's, it's possible that, and this is where my thought, I would have to do more research on this, but it's possible that because David was living in a time of kings and in a time of, um, of leadership in that kind of royal way, that the way in which he continued his life for the last few moments was based on how to pass on leadership and to pass on strength. Whereas with Abraham, the way that you do that is through your children. So it's possible that they're exactly the same, that they're dealing with their last days um, in a same way. But to me, one feels much more familial. One feels much more family oriented, even though we don't think of Abraham as having a good relationship with his son, Isaac. And yet David's last moments are, are seen as, as kind of transactional in a way. And I love your connection, Larry, to, to his love of Bathsheba um, and how he kind of re- Realize that realizes that in a different way, similar to maybe how Abraham felt about Sarah when he found himself a new wife. Uh, but anyway, so I have no conclusion to my statement, but that's that's what I've been thinking about is how in our final moments um, do the people around us feel like we need to kind of push on more? And how do we situate ourselves in which the things that happen that we kind of put into motion before we no longer have the ability to put things into motion, um, reflect on who we are as a, as a person. Rabbi Schatz, that's great. Uh, just a 15 second riff off of that. Yeah. Before we get to Marshall, they were both concerned with continuity and they were yeah. both concerned with continuity of the peoplehood. Um, and maybe more than that. And we're concerned about continuity yeah. and what we have to do to ensure continuity depends on the circumstance. There's no one way. Each yeah. of them found their way to, to ensure the continuity, just as we in our communities need to reach out and find different ways to make sure that we have Jewish continuity. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Marshall, let's see if you can get unmuted. Okay, I'm unmuted. You are. Yes. Okay. Uh, I like, Rick, what you did very much, making reference to the footnotes. I'd like to just point out a difference in a footnote. If you take a look at footnote 18. Yes. On page 144, there it says specifically, quote, uh, commenting on the spelling of the word vi'ata with an ayin, which you made reference to, it says benusach acher in another version, vi'ata with an aleph. Yes. Which means you. However, the footnote for verse 31 is different. Yes. It does not refer to a nusachacher, but it's a special type of, of, of footnote, and it says svirin umatin artsa. And according to the JPS Tanakh commentary, yes. at the back of the book, there's a guide to Hebrew footnotes. Yes. And it says there that svirin is those who think, and in parentheses, using logic or rules of grammar, that the text should be read here as follows, 
mat'in will mislead will mislead others hmm. that as they are mistaken and so this is sort of a question which maybe does cannot be answered immediately now because i never really checked out what this footnote may, meant but is it really saying don't mess with a uh a received text the hmm. text is holy and therefore even though you think grammatically the word should be artsa that is to she she bowed down to the earth yes here in the the received text it's eretz mm-hmm. and anybody who wants to use rules of grammar which i often love to do <laughs> is going to be misleading others here so uh, maybe rabbi Schatz or you rick or you larry might have some idea why do we have this special footnote here Svirin umatin it's so it's, they might have better comments than I, but I, I'll start. Um, <laughs> the, the, it's interesting that you bring this up because in a class that I was teaching um, on Thursday, I mentioned to the women there that that in the story of Rebecca, it is written, and I didn't have a chance to check in an actual scroll, but it is written if you look at a transcript of what is ri- of um, you know how you write out as opposed to how it sounds. It's vehanaar except for that there's a kamatz underneath the, the resh to make it sound like na'ara, but yeah. the word na'ar means young boy and na'ara means young girl. So, so what you're saying is just reminding me, I don't really have such an answer, but what you're saying is reminding me of that because we, we know, or at least we assume that Rebecca was a female, right? And so what, what it would have been is na'ara based on, on our Hebrew suffixes and how the hay is used to say that that means that it was a young woman as opposed to a young man. But even if you look in the Eitz Chaim, it says vehana'ar in small print because that's actually how it's written, though we're supposed to say vehana'ara. So um, uh, Rick might have a better explanation in terms of the Haftorah piece, but I, I think that you're right that there is something, you know, we don't know. We don't know who the guy was who put the kamats under the race to make it sound like na'ara. We don't know why it was written na'ar. So should we have, should we be reading na'ar, even though that doesn't really make grammatical sense? Or should we read na'ara because she was a young female? And so in this case, though it doesn't change really the, um, the the efficacy of of a gender it does change the meaning of the of the verse so rick looks like he has a better answer than, than i do but i wanted to bring that Not i wanted to, to bring that a different answer than i different. do but that yes, yes. but i want to bring that also from the parsha because i think it's a an interesting connection to what you're bringing marshall right the only one is, the thing i, I want to say is biblical hebrew compared to modern hebrew is just weird yeah, that's the best way I can say it. So in biblical Hebrew, you have na'ara written without the hay, and it's supposed to be a girl. They just they didn't they didn't bother with the hay until later on. It was yeah. a later later uh, uh, evolution of the language. Same thing with who and he. You have the hay vav aleph, right? And sometimes you pronounce it he, meaning she, and sometimes it's you pronounce it who, like it's like it's writ, uh, yeah, written. Yeah, yeah. But um, it, it was a biblical thing and only later on did somebody realize hey let's change the vav to a yud so that we can tell uh, he from she um and i don't know when that happened but um um the different humashim i found have different masoritic notes it's very fun uh to notice them 
Um, and sometimes they just incorporate the the way you're supposed to read it into the text, and you don't even know that the change was made uh, or that the original was different. But um, yeah, th there's all sorts of textual um, uh, um, alterations over time that the rabbi said, yeah, it looks like this, but read it like that, uh, or it should be like that. So I see two hands. I see Alan in the dark's hand, and I see Diane. Terrific. So Alan, why don't you try to unmute first? <clears throat> Can I be heard? You can. Okay. I, I very much, Marshall, appreciate your reference to the different footnotes. But as a practical matter, what is, it looks like they're belittling in verse 31 the notion of saying Artsa instead of Eretz. But what is the practical difference? What is the meaning in the text? What, would it, what does it mean to say Artsa? rather than Eretz, that makes it so wrong to be yeah. able to say it. Yeah, good question. Yeah. I don't know. And I noticed that the rabbi has left. You <laughs> <laughs> went to get a book to get Sorry, the answer. Rabbi, rabbi Klickfeld walked in and I, told, I was telling him how fantastic this was. <laughs> so I'm still here. I'm still here. Well, um, I, got, I, got, I got nothing about the difference, but I will note that Alter, who is my go-to for translation... Yeah, and, and commentary. Um, his translation is "her face to the ground," so he seems to accept the artsa. Yeah, I really don't know how it could be offensive to say artsa instead of eretz. Why that would mess people up? Yeah, and, and that's why it's a, it. What, what brings me to the attention to it is that, as Marshall noted, you know that it, in a different tradition it says this. However, here. It makes it belittling to say them. If it's a, if you do this, you yeah. are reducing the significance. You're doing something wrong by saying it is artsa. So mm -hmm. that that's what piqued my interest about what would be so wrong about saying artsa that they would they would that the the note that the note the footnote would be so negative. It maybe someone already said this. I'm sorry. I was I was just I was explaining to Rabbi Klickfeld how lovely it was to hear from you all teach this this morning. Um, the uh, artsa is directional, right? Just like yama kedmatsafona negba. So it's it kind of would be redundant if you said apaim artsa vehishtahu. So it's possible that they just got rid of artsa because of the redundancy. It doesn't actually do anything to the um, to to the kind of the understanding of the sentence, but it would be that she that her face went down landward and she bowed. Right. So it, it's just redundant as opposed to she she bowed down her face to the ground. Um, that's my only guess. I'll take it. Okay, let me let me try this. Um, if you go back to 28, when he forgets that she's there and he summons her again and then she, somehow she stands before him again. Um, maybe uh, she just kind of nods, so kind of curtsies or something. She doesn't go all the way to the ground. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Okay, Diane, Diane, last comment, and then we'll do Kiddush. And if you all want to stay on here until 4 p.m., you can to talk about the Haftarah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a quick question, um, I think. It, in the Middle Ages, music with text, choral music with text often 
had a convention of going down in pitch when they were talking about something actually going down. And yeah. I thought I heard um, a bit of that um, in like chapter in um, verse um, 23, where, where um, Natan is bowing low. And also when, um, Adonia is going down hmm. to sacrifice. And I'm wondering if there's any kind of convention like that in trope in general. Um, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, um, there's definitely high points where you have the high trope and, um, yeah, I, I think the book of Jonah, I think when he's going down into the ship and down, I think, yeah. I think there's a couple of downward, uh, trope there. Um, he was the, a depressed guy. He was very down. <laughs> but um, and in Jerusalem, uh, the the um, you know it was on a hillside, so going up and down was important because Solomon built the temple on the top, and the palace was next, and then the city was below that. So um, there's there was some directional his, history to things. So Larry is is muted and can't unmute. So maybe. Um... Oh. You can get unmuted. Let's unmute Larry. <laughs> I muted so you wouldn't hear feedback from Diane. Oh, oh, oh. So if that's the last comment, or the, the last comment from the, um, from, from the Cajal, uh, I think we're going to wrap up. I just wanted to make one general observation about these repeated stories. And it's like our lives, where we tell ourselves stories and tell other people's stories. And over time, those stories change a little bit, slight alterations, not lies, not intentional um, distortions to the story, but the narrative we tell ourselves and the narrative we tell others at the end, that's what's important, not the reality of what actually happened, because that's what influences our behavior. And what influenced David's behavior, if you take, take him to be that he was suddenly energized and that he went and he made sure that Solomon would follow him, was this story that was told to him by Bathsheba and by Natan, and not his own recollection of well, what actually happened. So that's the conclusion I draw from, or the moral I draw from this Haftarah. So that's it for this week. Rick? One more thing. Uh, Rabbi Klickfeld's draws for the week, he talked about the video of the woman who was in the home and they played Swan Lake and she enlivened and she woke up and she was like the swan again. So I, I, huh. it just occurred to me with King David, what were the words, what were the things for him to see, for him to wake up and say, Hey, I gotta, I gotta save Solomon here. So I like that. All right. Well, normally we wish everyone a Shabbat Shalom. I think we can do that today. Yes, if indeed. Liked, if you liked what you saw, um, it's usually much briefer than this, but the Haftarah Plathora is available almost every week um, on your Shabbat bulletin and the Library Minion uh, weekly bulletin. And we would love to get feedback from you as well. And if you want to join us as a guest, we like having guests as well. So Shabbat Shalom. Yes, Thank you so much. Yes, Koach to you both. Um, yeah, I, I often talk about how remarkable it is that our congregation is full of people who can teach Torah and can share wisdom in, at such a high level. And this was more 
Haftorah diving than I've done in a very long time. Um, so thank you. Really, really powerful stuff and just proves that we should be spending more time on the Haftarah and, and not just talking about the Torah portions, which we all know so well, um, and that have so much to offer every week, but that the Haftorah is rich as well. And the two of you playing off of one another and sharing both the music and the content, um, is really is really wonderful so thank you for doing it weekly and thank you for bringing it to us this week you have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from temple beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative judaism in los angeles if you enjoy these podcasts we invite you to write a review on the apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts for more information about temple beth Am, los angeles go to tbala.org 